Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. That is a wonderful truth. That particular phrase is the gospel in its most essential and abbreviated form. It can certainly and needs to certainly be filled out. But if you were to take the essence of the gospel and reduce it to its absolute core, although you would need to sort of inflate it, it is the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Today, as we think of the resurrection, we're going to tread off of the beaten tra- track a little bit. We, uh, we are going to switch over to the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn it to Romans chapter 4. We're not going to Romans 4 because we have gotten everything we possibly could have out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. The resurrection accounts in those passages, uh, we have not plumbed their depths and we have not exhausted all of their meanings. They're things that we will go to again and again and again. It's not because we want to do away with them or because we think that we have overwhelmed our own interpretations of those accounts, but rather because I kind of want to show you something. I want to show you one basic principle, and that is simply this, that all of God's redemptive works, every single one of them, point toward the inescapable and central fact of Jesus' resurrection. All of them. Everything that he does. This is the core of our faith. It is the central tenet of our faith. To deny this is to deny the gospel. But it is the core of our faith, but that faith is not radically new. Belief in the resurrection is not radically new. It's not something only for New Testament people, but it was found deeply, deeply rooted in the Old Testament. It didn't begin when Jesus came up out of the grave. For we know, we can trace the lines back. We know that Jesus prophesied that he would come up out of the grave. We know that Daniel 12.2 predicted something like it. We know that Ezekiel 37 promised something like it. When Ezekiel looks out at the valley of dry bones and calls them to life and puts flesh upon them by the work of the Spirit. We know that Psalm 16.10 hinted at it when David said that he would not, God would not let his Holy One see corruption. But today we go back further than all of those. We go back further than the words of Jesus. We go back further than the words of Daniel and Ezekiel. We go back further even than David in the Psalms. Today we go back to the beginning, the very beginning of God's redemptive work in Abraham. The resurrection is not a story that has been made up out of whole cloth by the New Testament authors, but it is built into the warp and woof of the biblical storyline. It is the expectation of God's people from the very beginning that there would be resurrection. So, I don't think that the resurrection would have been a surprise to Abraham. I think that Abraham longed to see these days. That is quite a statement, and we need to go to Scripture to find out if that statement is true. So, Read with me, if you would, in Romans 4. However, we are going to be dipping into Genesis quite a bit. So if you would, also keep a finger back in the book of Genesis. Genesis 12 is where we'll begin, and we'll be working through parts of the Old Testament text of Genesis. But as we begin this morning, we will be reading from Romans 4, beginning in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the inheritance of the law, adherents of the law, who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise void. 
For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of our God. The first thing I want to point out to you, friends, from this particular passage is we need to believe like Abraham did in Genesis 12 and 15. We need to believe just like Abraham did in Genesis 12 and 15. Our faith is not substantially different. It is more explicit, but it is not substantially different. To kind of understand where we are, we're jumping into Romans, sort of into the deep end, and and we haven't waded into the book. Chapter 4 is trying to summarize the importance of grace and that it cannot be of works and grace. So promise and grace are kind of on one side of the ledger and works are on the other side. And Paul says these two things are mutually incompatible. You cannot think that you were saved by grace and also think that you were saved by works. They are impossible to mix together. If it is by works, you are getting the things that you are due. And we don't call that grace. That's not promise. That is simply getting what you are owed. But if you have received it by grace, then you haven't worked for it. And so he continually contrasts these things. By the time we get down to verse 13, he's focusing on the promise that was made to Abraham. That promise we read of in two places specifically. One place is Genesis 12, and the other place is Genesis 15. I'll be reading the first three verses of Genesis 12 before moving down to the first six verses of Genesis 15. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In chapter 15, God re-ups that promise. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, In a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household shall be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him This man shall not be your heir. But your very own son shall be your heir. 
And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God comes and makes what is quite clearly in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 unilateral promises. This is not a contract. It is not a covenant in the sense of a covenant that Abram needs to keep as well as God. It is a unilateral promise. He takes a man from out of his nation, from out of his family, and from out of his land and says, I will make you an absolute, unmitigated blessing for the world. And notice in chapter 12, how often that word blessing comes up. If you have read through, in our community groups, we've studied through the book of Genesis. If you've read through those first 11 chapters of Genesis, this strikes your ears as odd. Because while God might be seen to be merciful in those first 11 chapters, there is no one, no one who leaves those chapters thinking that God's blessing is being poured out upon the earth. People fall in Genesis 3, and they are exiled out. Genesis 5 can only be counted as a genealogy of death, where yes, people live a long time, but inevitably, that refrain that comes down is he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. That is punctuated all the more by the flood account, where everyone dies. Not by long life and natural causes, if we want to call them natural, but by God's judgment being poured out upon them. Even Genesis 11 You get the wrath and the vengeance of God being poured out upon people as he scatters them across the world. There is mercy in all of those things. God allows Adam and Eve to conceive and have children. He doesn't wipe them clean off the map. Those men and women who live 900 years but die do get to live 900 years. Noah and his family are brought through the flood. We would be right to see that there is a, a string of, of mercy that's woven through this, but it is one, one, small, one small thread in a tapestry of judgment and wrath. There is perhaps mercy, but we're left with the sincere impression that God is not blessing anyone. And then all of a sudden, there is this unilateral promise to Abram. There is blessing for you. Absolute blessing. So if we are to work for it, we do not believe like Abraham did. Abraham came out of that tent and looked up and said, I can't do this. And he believed that God would do it for him. He just trusted that the word of God was true. As an old man already being promised something that great, the one thing that he missed, God said, I will give it to you and more abundantly than you could ever believe. That is something that Abram couldn't work for. He couldn't gain on his own. And so if it comes through faith, the promise rests on grace. And it doesn't rest on work. We cannot gain what we need. We cannot do anything before God, but it is a free gift that comes to us. And for Abraham, it's not just those who inherit him by being his physical offspring. It's not just those who keep the law. That's what Paul means by the adherence of the law. It's not just people who are Jewish, who keep the law, who are actually Abraham's offspring, but it is those who act like him. This is what it means to be a son. It's, it's, we're getting away from it culturally for any of a number of reasons, but this, the Bible was written in a time, and for 1,800 years, 1,900 years after the Bible was written, this was how life worked. 
You looked, you acted, you did what your father did. If your father was a blacksmith, guess what? You were a blacksmith. If your father was a farmer, I hope you like potatoes because you're going to farm. If your father was a welder, you need to like welding. Thank goodness that's changed. I'm not a welder. So at any rate, this is, this is what it looks like. But I still am like my father in a good number of ways. The apple never falls far from the tree. And those of us who have been here and have listened to John, in John chapter 5, this is exactly what Jesus says, makes him the son of the father. I do what I see the father doing. This is what sons do. They watch their father work as a carpenter. They watch their father work as a blacksmith. They watch their father work as a farmer. And they do likewise. They look, they act, and they sound like him. So if you want to be sons of Abraham, you look, you act, and you sound like Abraham. You don't work for it, but you simply entrust yourself to it. We believe like Abraham did in both Genesis 12 and 15. We believe in a promise without any work on all of our parts. That leads us to point two. That is that we must believe like Abraham did in Genesis 17. In Genesis 17. All that might be great, but so far we've mentioned absolutely squat about the resurrection and about anything to do with the resurrection in the Genesis account. We might be able to come to verse 15 and said, for the law brings wrath, but there is no, where there is no law, there is no transgression, and we would be right to say this is part of the promise. You can't break a promise when it's a promise that somebody else has made to you. Okay, That's great, but there's nothing here about resurrection. Paul reports that Abraham didn't just believe in God, it wasn't just that he believed in God, but it's the nature of the God whom he believed in. Look at the end of verse 17 there. The end of verse 17. The nature of the God in whom Abraham believed is very specific. He is not just a God, but he is a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, there's two ways to think about that. Either what Paul is saying is that Abraham simply believed in God and this happens to be the nature of God. So Abraham might not have known it, but this is the kind of God he believed in. Or what Paul could be saying is, this is the nature of the God that Abraham believed in and he thought this was God's nature. Abraham believed that he was believing in a God who gives life to the dead. I think that that is a much more faithful reading of it. Abraham believed that God could raise the dead. Now, if that's true, that's a really, really difficult position to take. Because you can read through Genesis with all of the eyes of faith that you want to, and there is nary a resurrection to be found. No one is taken from death to life. Absolutely no one is, is killed or has life taken away from them and then has it given back to them. That happens in the Old Testament. Elijah and Elisha both raise children from the dead, but that does not happen in the book of Genesis. So how can we say such a thing? Listen, the promise to Abraham was an exceedingly great promise. Paul says here that he had to hope against hope, that Abraham understood the greatness of the promise. It was so great that normal hope would not nearly have carried him through. He had to hope even against what normal hope would have been. His hope had to be so great in the power of God to make these things true. The promise was so large that no one could possibly think and expect it to come true. And Paul seems to be building the tension here in the book of Romans, but we aren't really told why. 
Why is this such a big deal? You know, I've got a boy. I haven't named him Isaac. Many of you have children. It's not that big of a deal. Sure, they are to you, and I'm sure that they're your little miracles, but they're pretty average and plain kids, just like mine are. They're miracles only in one very limited sense, right? Otherwise, they're pretty normal things. People have them all the time. And they are loved by you, and they are loved by many, but they are not, not the miracles that are being talked of here. This miracle is great because of how and when God made it come about. Look at verse 19 in Romans. He, that is Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Listen, Abraham is told this when he's a hundred years old. Now, I don't have a colored book that will lead you through all the ins and outs of procreation, but 100-year-old men don't have children, no matter how many little pills they take. It's just not going to happen, okay? So there is an impossibility built into who Abraham was. And he looks at his body, and he says, this is dead. I'm living out the rest of my life, but there's not vitality in me in order to make any more life. There's nothing but deadness here. And yet, God promises him that through that deadness, there would come life. If you have your finger back in Genesis, turn now to Genesis 17. As we read verses 15 through 19, Paul retorts even even more than just him considering his own body, he also considered Sarah's womb. Now, Sarah was barren, And she was barren her whole life, which meant she was incapable, it seemed, at that time of ever bearing children. And to add to that, not only was Abraham 100 at the time, but Sarah herself was 90, 90 years old. God says this to Abraham in chapter 17. Beginning in verse 15, God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her, by her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Paul says, When Abraham considered his body, and you can tell in chapter 17 he considers his body, God comes with his blessing. I will make you and give you a child. He's already got a child, he's got Ishmael. The promise, if you read and you heard in Genesis 12 and 15, had nothing to do with Sarah. God never said anything about Sarah bearing children for the promise. It was simply that Abraham would have children. That's it. But now he says, no, 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 Ishmael, Ishmael's out. I don't need Ishmael. There is a child coming that Sarah will bear to you. And he looks at his own body and he thinks about Sarah and he, he laughs. He, he laughs. There's no other response to it. He, he considers his own body and he says, this is ridiculous. How, how is this going to happen? 
God finds it funny enough to record Isaac's name as indeed Isaac. He laughs because Sarah has the exact same response when she finds out about it. It is a ridiculous thing. How could such a thing ever happen? The promise to Abraham, friends, is central to every other promise in the Bible. No matter how grand, no matter how great the rest of the promises are, they all trace their nexus, they all trace their inspiration back to this promise to Abraham. The promise of Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and now indeed in Genesis 17. And the first time, the very first time that God proves that he will make his promises come true, that God says, I will show you the promises that I have made and how grand and magnificent they are and I will bring them to you. I will make them true. The very first time he does it is by bringing life out of something that cannot bear life. Abraham cannot bring forward life. Sarah's womb is an empty tomb. There's no life in there. Abraham needed to be shown that God's promise was not canceled by any trespass. He needed to be shown that there was nothing he could do to earn it, nothing he could do to reject it. There is only faith in believing and trusting in what God had said. Absolutely no way that Abraham, of his own work and own might, could bring forward the, the, the promise. This is why Ishmael was rejected. Ishmael was rejected because it was Abraham's own work to make the promise of God true. And God turns around and says, no, you can't make my promises come true. I am the only one who makes my promises come true. Lest you be fooled and everyone after you fooled as to what the importance of faith is, I will give you a miracle. I will give you a boy who should never have been born. I will give you life from death. God here is doing what only God can do. So we believe like Abraham did in chapter 17 of Genesis. But we also believe like Abraham did in chapter 22. We also believe like Abraham did in chapter 22. You can look at that and you can say, okay, well, that's fantastic. It's kind of neat. But if that's all you got, I'm not sure that I really believe it. That's not quite enough to, to make this grand statement that Abraham was looking for a resurrection and that he understood it and, and that it's kind of built into the, the warp and the woof of, of what Scripture says about our promises and how we are to believe. But I don't think Paul is done with Abraham and I don't think that we are either. If you go into Jewish literature, it is almost impossible to read Genesis 15:6 and the, the idea that it was counted to Abraham as righteousness without reading it in light of Genesis 22, the offering of Isaac on the altar. Not just in Jewish literature, but in Christian literature as well. Listen to these words of James, from James 2, verses 20 through 24. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, quite often, James and Paul are being faced off against one another here. 
James and Paul have no problems with one another. You can read, it's only a very limited reading of the book of Romans that leads you to believe that Paul doesn't want you to have good works coming along with faith, that faith should automatically lend yourself to a life that is lived separately. Even as Pastor Richard read this morning, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, absolutely not. If you have been dead in a death like his, you should be raised to live a life like his. Okay? So there is no sense in which Paul and James are fighting against one another. But what James is saying is that faith cannot just be mental. You can't just think that you believe something. It has to actually come out in the way you live your life. So we have Genesis 22. Flip there. I'll read the narrative of these first 14 verses of Genesis 22. After these things... God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from the heavens and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I now know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, you can read through that and you can say, see, again, you're talking about a resurrection where there is no resurrection. Let's be very clear, though. That is not how Abraham saw it. And that is not how Abraham was living out his life. There was no resurrection here because God stopped him. But we need to listen to the words of Genesis 17 carefully and realize what God had promised Abraham. When many of us read this, there's a sense in which we read it as though what we think is actually going on is Abraham trusts that God can do miracles like bringing babies from Sarah's dead womb. And if he's done it once Gosh, and by golly, he can do it again. And if he can do it again, then why not offer up Isaac? Because if I kill Isaac 
God's promise will still be true and he will still give me another son. But God makes it clear, both in Genesis 22 and in Genesis 17, there is no other son. Isaac is the one who is to inherit. Isaac is your only son. You're not getting another son. When Abraham picks up that knife to put it into his son, he is not thinking that he will get another one someday. He is thinking no matter how much I cut, that boy will rise again. He thinks with all of his heart that he can slaughter him and God will give him back to him again. Listen to what Paul says. He says in verse 20 of chapter 4, No distrust made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. To say something about growing strong in your faith, it doesn't seem to me to insist on nine months. Now, I am reading into Paul a little bit there. Granted, I am doing that. But to think that he grew strong simply over nine months, I don't think reads Genesis or reads Romans rightly. I think what he means is he, after nine months, after a year, received his son from the Lord and he held his son. And in doing so, his faith grew strong so that he realized exactly what God had done. He had given him life from nothing. And so if he were to kill his son, he knew that God could give him life from a dead boy as well. It is faith fully and assuredly in a resurrection. Abraham had no doubt in this. And if you doubt that that's what scripture teaches about it, the book of Hebrews will help you. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received the promises, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, that is Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham's faith is faith in the power of God to bring life to the dead. It is the completion of his faith. He believed the word of God beyond what any normal man could ever possibly, it seemed, believe. Let there be no doubt What God was leading Abraham to believe in was a God who would be able to bring the life back to the dead, to make the things that weren't into the things that were. So we believe precisely what Abraham did. Abraham believed it looking forward to a day. We look it back remembering a day, but at the same time our hopes are set on the same primary event, Romans 4, 22 through 24. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That is why he believed in the promise of God. He believed that he couldn't work for it. And because he couldn't work for it, God required the only thing out of him that he could possibly require out of him. Faith. Trust my word. So it was counted to him as righteousness. That's all that God requires. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The promise that God made to Abraham was too good for Abraham to accomplish on his own. The point of the promise was to show that only God could bring it about. And thus, because only God can do it, all that God requires is that we believe that he can. The question that should focus upon us is why then the resurrection? 
Why does God do it this particular way? Why not do something else that Abraham can't do? Give him, I don't know, some sort of calculus or chemistry problem that he couldn't possibly understand or tell him to jump to the moon and then show that only God can do it or, or say, hey, Abraham, why don't you circle a square while you're at it and I'll show you how to do this later. God is not randomly picking events to show that Abraham can't do what God wants him to do. God picks this particular miracle in this particular way for a particular reason. It is because the resurrection is not just a way of pointing toward our innocent inability like how short people can't get stuff off the top shelf. That's not because of sin. It's because you're short. You have an inability. You are limited by your height. That's why we've made stools. So that is not what Abraham is. Abraham is not just innocently inhibited by his, his inability to make kids. It's not an innocent thing. God doesn't give that to him because of that. You see, the first three chapters of the book of Romans is laying this out for us. The resurrection implies something important about our inability, and that inability is inability due to sin. Romans 1 through 3 is making the case very strongly that whether you are Jewish or whether you are a Gentile, all of you fall short of the glory of God. You've all rebelled against his power. You have all been treacherous, and you have acted in such a way that you have scorned the God of creation. And it is a grievous sin, and it is not a sin that God takes lightly. Paul, back in Romans 3, concludes his demonstration of this by quoting scripture that none is righteous, no, not one, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, all of us have a just penalty due upon us, which is no less than death. But God must be good to his word. So there is good news for us. Because after these verses, we realize that while all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine foreparents he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Listen, what that means is this. God has promised unilaterally to Abraham that I will make you a blessing and that all of the nations of the world will, become a, will be blessed through you. But there is a grave and serious problem, and that is our sin. How is God going to bless people that he should be cursing? To do that calls against his justice. It means that God isn't being true to his word. So in order to be true to his word, it seems like God has to counteract his word. The only way that he can get around that is by killing his son, Jesus Christ, so that your penalty is indeed paid, and God is indeed just to penalize that sin when he finds it. But that also means because your sin has been paid by Christ that he can justify you. He can declare you innocent because your charges have been paid. That is the glory of the gospel. That is why our faith is intrinsically linked to the resurrection because our faith is a faith in the resurrection because we knew that there had to be a death and that salvation implies that there must be a life. Death and life go together. 
Salvation from our sins means that there must have been a sacrifice, a death for our sins, but salvation implies that there must be life. So Christ was delivered up because of our sins, and he was raised because of our sins, or because of our justification, because God made a promise that through Abraham, the world would be blessed. So we gather today to proclaim a faith and a God who gives life to the dead, not because we're simply remembering a nice fact from 2,000 years ago and thinking back through a work that God did randomly to a, to a, to a backwoods Jew. That's not why we've gathered. We do this because it is the central tenet of our faith, the only fact that will save us and the best news that we can proclaim. Abraham believed that God could raise the dead because God needed to be true to his word. And Abraham could not do that on his own. We are the recipients of the promise, yet we also cannot make it true. Our works can never make us one with God. They can never atone for our sin. And our sin before God has made us inept, and sin has corrupted our spiritual lives. So we believe as Abraham believed, that God would make us his people through bringing life out of death. He was pleased to bruise his son, to have him delivered over to death, that he might justify us through the resurrection. God is faithful, and God is true to his word, because Jesus has risen, and he has risen indeed. Let us pray. Father, all of your works and salvation declare your glory, but none so much as the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection is our hope our hope of our sins being forgiven, of being made right with you, of knowing your grace and experiencing your goodness. Let the resurrection of our Lord be the central tenet of our faith, the very core, the very thing that we cannot escape from, that which gives us hope, that which gives us power, that which gets us through the darkest of times. Our Lord was resurrected from the grave, and soon we will be with him. Let that faith be the light which guides our path and the hope for which we long. We pray for this in Jesus' most blessed name. Amen.